Welcome, 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 this is a special episode, is it not? Yeah, Jared, I'm actually really, really excited about this episode. Today, we actually don't have any guests. We are the guests. Uh, we're switching it up a little bit, mainly because we like to hear ourselves talk, but also because we had some interesting topics that we've been dying to discuss with you guys. Yeah, so Jared and I have both chosen a topic. Well, let me start by saying Jared and I are both interested in pulmonary and critical care medicine. In case you didn't know. In case we hadn't mentioned that several times. <laughs> and so the topics we wanted to address were more critical care focused um, than some of our previous episodes, I will say. We have both chosen topics that come up in the ICU a lot, come up on wards a lot. And it's it's not so much a things we do for no reason episode, but more of what it, what is the data support of the things we're, that we're doing and kind of trying to do a deeper delve into what, what data supports and what we kind of do empirically, which might not have as much data behind it. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this episode because I really wanted to, uh, Tara and I both wanted to answer some clinical questions specifically regarding the use of albumin and the use of bicarb when it's indicated and when it there's not really a lot of data behind it. And I think this these questions come up a lot on the wards and also on the unit. And so Tara and I both did some research and we're hoping to help answer some of those questions. We're going to break these two topics into two separate episodes. And Dr. Swanson is going to lead off and tell us about indications and non-indications for sodium bicarbonate. Okay, guys. Again, this is our first episode where we're just kind of talking straight about a topic. So be patient with us. So my kind of clinical question or question that I wanted to answer is really when do we add bicarb to our fluids? When is, when is it indicated? When does the data show that it can improve mortality? And maybe times when it's not so much indicated and it, when it can actually lead to poor outcomes. So the way that I'll go about doing this is I'll kind of talk about first what sodium bicarb is, how we use it in the hospital, the kind of the nitty gritty of how physically we add it to our fluids or in what doses we give it. And then I'll talk about cases where we definitely use it. And then I'll talk about some gray zone areas where the data can be interpreted in different ways. And sometimes people do actually interpret it in, in, in different ways, depending on provider preference. Tara, before we begin, I'm interested, first of all, very interested in what you have to say. I think that when I think about bicarb, the times that I've used it in the hospital, definitely in cases uh, where patients are hyperkalemic, especially in the unit when they aren't making urine and you're trying to temporize them either until they start making urine again or you can get the CRT, uh, CRT circuit hooked up. And then I think other times that I've used bicarb, are when a patient has metabolic acidosis and some sort of kidney dysfunction. And I haven't really used, and then also in code situations, I've definitely pushed bicarb. So I'm interested to see if the ways that I've used bicarb is driven by data, or maybe I'm just, you know, flying off, flying off the cuff with all this bicarb that I'm using. That is exactly why this is the question that I wanted to answer. 
I'm wondering if I'm just pushing amps more often than I should. So speaking of amps and speaking of code situations, let's talk about what one amp of bicarb is. This is a common concentration that you'll hear. It's actually 8.4% bicarb. It has an osmolarity of about 2,000 milliosms. So basically... Wow. 2,000? I know. Who knew? (laughs) So... The crash carts that you see that we have on our units in the U.S. contain the 50 mil equivalents bicarb in 50 mLs, but that is 2,000 milliosms, which is a lot if you think about it. It's actually like 5.8% 5 5. NACL, so it's actually higher than hypertonic saline. Wow. Yes. And then when we're thinking about fluids and giving somebody maintenance fluids or volume resuscitating fluids with bicarbonate, that's a 1.3% bicarb concentration. It's about 300 milliosms. It's only 0.88% in ACL. I'm saying all these numbers, but basically one of them is super concentrated, is more concentrated in NACL than hypertonic saline. And then the other one is more isotonic. It's it, You can use it as an isotonic fluid. And typically with that 1.3%, you would mix it in three. And I think we're all pretty used to putting three amps of bicarbonate in D5W. In a liter of D5W. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you're saying that a push of an amp of bicarb, that like 50 mils is very concentrated, as opposed to it being more diluted in the 1,000 mil bag. Right. So you put three amps in that 1,000, in that liter bag of D5W, and then you have this quote-unquote isotonic bicarb. And again, one of them we use more commonly in code situation. The other we use, like Jared was saying, in the ICU to decrease potassium um, to stave off dialysis, et cetera. So those are the formulations of bicarb that we have. Right. Before I get into specific indications for when we might use bicarb, let's talk about why acidemia is bad. So bicarb, we're always thinking of situations of a metabolic acidosis or a lactic acidosis, pH of you know 7.1. We're thinking about giving bicarb-containing fluids. Why is acidemia bad? For your body. Tara, that's really interesting about the different formulations when we go to order it, because I know in the order set in Epic, you do have a choice between just the amp and the infusion. So now that helps us kind of make decisions about uh, especially the osmolality and then the acuity with which we can give the bicarb. Biggest thing that we're worried about whenever we're trying to give bicarb is acidosis. Do you mind reminding us why acidosis or Better yet, acidemia, the presence of H plus in the blood is negative for our bodies. Jared, thank you so much for asking that. It's like I planted you there. (laughs) So I did have to remind myself of why exactly physiologically acidosis or acidemia is bad for us. So remember that acidosis reduces cardiac contractility. And so when you have somebody who's trying to compensate for, for a tissue hypoperfusion, Cardiac contractility is going to be important. Also, when you're thinking about people in the ICU and being on either inotropes or vasopressors, acidosis can decrease the vascular response to those pressors and also to inotropes. I did not know that acidosis actually does decrease the cardiac response to inotropes. I think we have all witnessed um, the decrease in pressor response in the presence of acidosis. I think you make a good point, Tara, that profound acidemia can reduce the effectiveness of your vasopressors. And I have had a fellow show me on the unit that if you just push bicarb in somebody who's on pressors that are not working, you can transiently decrease the level of pressor requirements they need to maintain an adequate map. The last thing that I'll mention is in addition to a reduction in cardiac output with acidosis or acidemia, you also have a shift of potassium out of cells in an attempt to buffer acidosis. And that 
hyperkalemia, of course, can predispose you to arrhythmia. So you have this decreased inotropy, decreased cardiac contractility, and then you're also at risk for arrhythmias. So it's a setup for badness. One note I will add here is you only give bicarbonate for hyperkalemia if they are acidotic, or else it won't work to help shift the potassium. Last thing I will say is acidosis itself decreases the threshold for arrhythmias, which is something I did not know either. So I think we have covered enough of the benefits of not being acidemic. So it makes sense that when we see somebody come in with a scary pH, their pH is 7.1, it makes sense that we would kind of reach for some bicarb in order to correct that acidemia. This I needed a refresher on. The surviving sepsis guidelines actually recommend against routine administration of sodium bicarb, just given the negative side effects and the fact that bicarb is not necessarily a benign medication to give. And then also a reminder that sodium bicarb was removed from the treatment algorithm of cardiac arrest and ACLS. So thinking about the downsides of giving bicarb empirically, remember that when bicarb is administered, you you have bicarb and you have the proton responsible for the acidemia. And then that buffers into carbon dioxide and water. So when you give bicarb, you actually generate more acid through that CO2. And so you can really only improve your acid-based status if you can also increase ventilation and blow off that CO2. So if you're, for example, if you're maximally ventilated, you can't actually change the pH because you're changing that proton to CO2 and then you can't actually blow it off. So that's one thing to think about. And then the last thing is it does shift the O2 the oxygen release curve to the left. So actually it inhibits oxygen release off of hemoglobin. So that can lead to further tissue hypoxia. But that does not mean that there are not plenty of reasons to use bicarb. So again, just as a reminder, our treatments should always be tailored to etiology. So if somebody's coming in in septic shock, somebody's coming in with diabetic ketoacidosis, you are going to want to treat the underlying cause. But if you know they're in critical condition and you're waiting for your antibiotics to work, Maybe you give them a little bicarb just to transiently raise that pH while you're waiting for your treatment to kick in. And I think that's why it can be tempting to just grab the bicarb, is you want to stave off acidemia until your treatment has started working. But let's talk about when to definitely use sodium bicarb. So for your non-anion gap metabolic acidoses, many of these stem from a bicarbonate deficiency. So it makes sense that if you have a metabolic acidosis due to bicarbonate loss, you would treat with sodium bicarb. Thinking about GI losses, diarrhea, high output fistulas, uh, that kind of thing. Think about renal insufficiency where you're, you can't make more bicarb. And then RTAs, of course. So those are going to be indications to absolutely give sodium bicarb for a bicarbonate deficit. Another instance where you definitely want to reach for the bicarb is in medication overdoses. Thinking about TCA overdoses, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, et cetera, flecainine, and then Jared, we talked about this earlier, in salicylate toxicity, the sodium bicarb can help alkalinize your urine. That's a mouthful. I know. Alkalinize. I even practiced it before and I still didn't get it right the first time. Sounds good. Um, And then the last last indication that has good data behind it is for hyperkalemia. And again, we kind of talked about this, but that's to shift the potassium back intracellularly. So then there's these question mark times of when to use bicarb and kind of provider dependent or situation dependent are times when people would either reach for bicarb or not. Those are, I'll kind of lump them together and we can talk about each one individually, uremic acidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis, and then lactic acidosis. So these are the anion gap metabolic acidoses. So to summarize so far, it sounds like 
I should reach for a bicarb in a patient who has an acidosis and they are in a bicarb deficient state, such as if I had a patient with profuse diarrhea, like they have C. diff and they have a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, it's okay to give them some bicarb. Give them the bicarb. To replete some of that. And that would give, that would benefit them. And then other instances like renal dysfunction, where they may may have an RTA and they're not able to generate their own own bicarb, it would also be beneficial to my patients. Okay. Absolutely. I I can vibe with that. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, we think about how we supplement patients who are CKD patients. We supplement with bicarb. True. As an outpatient. As an outpatient. Bicarb tabs. Everyone's favorite by Citra in the hospital as well. So tasty. Yeah. Okay. Have you you had it before, Jared? No, I haven't. Uh, I've had plenty of boosts, though. I can can vouch for that. So, Tara, why don't you tell us some indications of when it's probably not the right decision to reach for bicarb? Like I was saying, the anion gap metabolic acidosis, it becomes more of a gray area. Let's talk about diabetic ketoacidosis first, because I think this area is is less gray for me, at least after reading through the data. If somebody is in diabetic ketoacidosis, they come in with a pH of 7.1. That's very scary. But when you think about it, the patients who are in ketoacidosis are really working hard to blow off all their CO2. And so they're usually coming in with that deep respirations, acousmal respirations. And so if you push bicarb in them, you're really just making more CO2 for them to then blow off. And they're already doing their best to blow off that CO2. There's a systematic review of the evidence, which shows no justification for the administration of bicarb in ketoacidosis. And actually, in a couple of studies, there was an increased risk of cerebral edema and worsening tissue hypoxia. I will note here that the ADA guidelines do say to give bicarbonate in DKA if the pH is less than 6.9, and you continue to give the bicarbonate until the pH is above 7. So if you are thinking about giving bicarb in a DKA patient whose pH is over 7.1, the guidelines don't necessarily say give bicarb. But again, if the pH is below 7, you should be giving bicarbonate to DKA patients. So this goes back to what we were saying before. When a patient comes in with an acidosis, it's supremely important to figure out what's on your differential for what could be causing that. And if you have a clear-cut case of diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a metabolic acidosis where some a patient's having respiratory compensation, we really need to give them insulin and fluids to try and decrease that acid source as opposed to giving them bicarb, which will not treat the actual cause of or source of their acid. Exactly. Like we mentioned before, treating the underlying diagnosis, insulin fluids, is probably your best bet. In internal medicine, I think it always comes back to treat the source, right? (laughs) I mean, you can never be wrong if you just say that on rounds. Yeah, Uh, exactly. Okay, so number one, bicarb not indicated in DKA. There's no proven benefit. No proven benefit. I'm going to skip over the uremic acidosis. I'll just say a quick word here that bicarb is effective in staving off acidosis in attempts to avoid dialysis in these uremic acidosis patients and also can be helpful with hyperkalemia. Which are, So those are two indications for dialysis, acidemia, and hyperkalemia. So the bicarb can be beneficial in these uremic patients. But I'll get into that a little bit more later. The last category that I want to talk about is lactic acidosis. I feel like we're seeing a lot of that where we see a lot of that in the medical ICU where people come in septic shock, they have a lactate of 9 or 10, and they're acidemic. So I'm sure that on rounds in the ICU, somebody has brought up the BICAR ICU trial at some point. The main takeaways are that in a lactic acidosis, 
bicarb, it's tempting to reach for bicarb when the pH is low, when the pH is 7.05, but actually doesn't improve mortality in these patients. It's a study out of France it's from 2018. But ah, it's the French. The French. They're so <laughs> smart. It's basically a multi-center trial from 26 ICUs in France. The inclusion criteria are adult patients admitted to the ICU with severe acidemia. That is a pH of seven point, of less than 7.2 or PaCO2 of over 45 with high SOFA scores or a lactate of greater than 2. So the outcomes that were measured were death from any cause at one month or at least one organ failure at day 7. And like I mentioned before, the primary outcome, which was mortality, showed no difference in outcome in severe metabolic acidemia with treatment with bicarb. The secondary outcome that I'll go into a little bit more is a decrease in 28-day mortality in patients who came in with an AKI and severe acidemia. Tara, I have a few thoughts. First of all, sad, yet another ICU trial that was negative. But there is some hope <laughs> in silver lining, which I do appreciate. And that's why I like this trial, because it does highlight a subpopulation that it's not all comers who come to the ICU with... Uh, sounds like a, a severe acidosis don't benefit. But the patients with a severe AKI who have a uh, low bicarb, it kind of reinforces that idea that we had for patients with that non-GAP metabolic acidosis where they can't generate bicarb. So it kind of makes sense to me that those patients would benefit. Exactly. And this trial actually doesn't differentiate between the NAGMAs, the non-GAP metabolic acidosis, right. and the lactic acidosis. This is all severe acidemia with high lactates or SOFA scores. So without getting too much further into the weeds, really the significance of this result is that people who are clinicians who are already using sodium bicarb shows that, especially in patients with AKI, this may delay or reduce the requirement for renal replacement therapy for CRRT. And then also for those that opt to avoid sodium bicarb, that there's no real compelling evidence to change their practice. Again, unless somebody comes in with an AKI. Let's talk about the positive outcome a little bit more and the benefits of avoiding dialysis or staving off dialysis. I think we see dialysis a lot in the ICUs. We see CRRT. We see a lot of outpatient hemodialysis. But we have to remember that emergent dialysis is invasive. You have to put in a catheter. It can be uncomfortable. And then it's pretty expensive to do CRRT. So avoiding dialysis is actually kind of a big deal. And it's actually a, a pretty important patient-centered outcome just by itself. And avoiding dialysis can reduce numerous complications if you're thinking like we're putting in a huge line, line infections, right. thromboses, blah, blah, blah. So procedural, so avoiding it, you know, you avoid procedural risk, the cost of it in terms of personnel and just cost of the patient. And then also long-term renal outcomes. I'm sure there must be some negative effects towards towards that as well. Right. So at the very least, the study suggests that Using bicarb to avert dialysis is not harmful and also probably has some benefits. Bicarbonate reduced the need for dialysis from 52 to 35%. That's the number needed to treat of six patients wow, to prevent one patient from requiring dialysis. That's pretty good. Yeah. Especially in, you know, our field where number needed to treat are often in double digits. Precisely. Do you want How to talk you... about codes? Okay, so I'm just going to touch on really quickly my comment about cardiac arrest and sodium bicarb. Just to clarify, I'm not saying giving an amp of bicarb during arrest is the wrong thing to do. I think when you don't know the etiology of an arrest, it's hard to not give bicarb. But there has been some data in recent years that shows that sodium bicarb administration can have deleterious effects during cardiac arrest, including kind of what we talked about earlier, 
increased intracellular acidosis, reduced cardiac output, and shifted the oxygen dissociation curve to the left. So again, that increased affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen, resulting in hypoxia. And then the other two things, the hypernatremia and hyperosmolarity that we talked about, just given that the AMSA bicarb are hyperosmolar and have about 8% NACL in them. So just as a clarification, there is some potential harm from administration of sodium bicarb for rapid correction of acidemia during cardiac arrest. And the latest ACLS guidelines do not recommend routine administration as part of their uh, algorithm, but sodium bicarb is still very much a mainstay as part of mainstay of resuscitation and cardiac arrest in my experience. Tara, okay. I think we've we've talked about Cousin Bicarb for quite a while now. Why don't you... You're just jealous. You want to talk about Albion. I do. Now. I do. I, I want to get to uh, Big Al, my friend. Um, <laughs> but can you give us some, some summary points and something that we can take home? Absolutely. Okay. So takeaways. Bicarb is, is a treatment that is not without risk. Times when you absolutely should reach for Bicarb is in the instance of a non-an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Usually this is from a bicarb deficiency, so it makes sense. Treat it with bicarb. The evidence from bicarb ICU also justifies this. And then also do not withhold bicarb from those patients who come in with medication overdoses. That's going to be a treatment to stabilize the cardiac membrane and also to alkalinize the urine in the instance of aspirin toxicity. Secondly, in diabetic ketoacidosis, maybe is not your treatment of choice. What you're going to want to do is treat the diabetic ketoacidosis with insulin fluids. And then in the instance of pure lactic acidosis, there's very little evidence to support the use of bicarb here. Bicarb ICU doesn't really provide sufficient evidence to support the use of bicarb. Again, you're going to be wanting to treat the underlying cause. So my takeaway from the bicarb ICU is, yes, continue to use bicarbonate for the non-ionion gap metabolic acidoses. And then particularly those patients who come in with uremic acidosis as a treatment to try to stave off dialysis. All right. Thank you for tuning in for this special episode on sodium bicarb. Stay tuned for part two. We're going to talk about big brother Al, as Jared calls him, but that's albumin for all of those people who don't speak <laughs> Jared language. Uh, we'll be talking about albumin next next episode. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon.